Hi, I'm Todd James of the Santa Monica Daily Press, and I'm joined with our editor, Matt Hall. Today, we're continuing our election podcast coverage, uh, focusing on city council now. Uh, Today's interview will be with Christine Parra, who's a challenger, but she's part of a slate. So, Matt, what can you tell us about Christine? Yep, she's she's very interesting. Um, she currently works in emergency management uh, over in Culver City. Um, she's running as part of a four-person anti-incumbency slate um, alongside uh, Mario, Phil, and Oscar. Um, she is a you know longtime Santa Monica resident. She's been involved in a couple of other civic uh, activities here. She was involved in uh, residents' concerns about. Um, opening child care centers in, in residential neighborhoods. And that was a big, big point for her to get involved locally. Um, yeah, she's a, an interesting woman. And m- many people might not know her. She's not as well known as particularly the other folks on her slate. But her professional background is particularly interesting. And I think, I think that's one of the really sh- uh, strong points that differentiates her in this cycle. And I think that's one of the things that folks should particularly pay attention to with her. All right. Well, let's hear what Christine Parra has to say. All right, folks, uh, we're here today with one of the candidates for city council. Uh, Christine Parra is here to discuss her candidacy with us and um, tell us why she wants to run. So, Christine, thank you very much for being here. Um, Why don't you take a couple minutes and tell folks who you are and why you are running for city council? Sure. Um, Women like me aren't supposed to run for Santa Monica City Council. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. I'm not a lawyer or a realtor or part of the the local machines that control our government. My name is Christine Parra. I'm a city worker in the fire department of a nearby city. I'm a working class mother and a wife. Going into politics wasn't in my plan, but when I was disrespected and ignored by the Santa Monica City Council, while filing, fighting to stop the commercialization of my neighborhood, I felt I had, some, I had to do something about it. Who is Santa Monica City Council working for? Not for the residents, not for working families like mine. We're not safe on our streets or in our parks. Taxes keep going up and so does city spending. New development is driving working class families away. It's time to fight for a Santa Monica that cares about all residents. That's why I'm running for city of Santa Monica City Council. Gotcha. Um, so a couple of things. I think your, your your professional history here is actually really interesting and relevant. And so um, can you expand a little bit on, on what it is uh, you do as a job? Absolutely. So for the last uh, 21 years, I've worked for the Culver City Fire Department. And I began in an administrative role in the fire department. And I fell in love with fire service. And from there... I was working full-time, and in the evenings I was going to school, completing my undergrad, and I decided to start taking fire officer classes on weekends and to become a fire inspector. So shortly after, I uh, graduated with a degree in city planning with an environmental emphasis, and I also finished my fire officer classes to become a certified fire inspector. And then a fire inspector position opened up in the department, and these are all sworn positions. They're sworn, I'm sorry, they're sworn and civilian positions. And so I was able to apply for a position that opened up as a hazardous materials fire inspector. And I became that fire inspector for six years. I also taught fire life safety to the community. And then uh, about 
six years later, I would say back in 2009, uh, the city opened up a position under the fire department for their first emergency preparedness coordinator. And so I applied for that position and I came out number one and I was offered the job. And so um, for the last 11 years, I have created a program, emergency management or preparedness program for the city of Culver City. And what that entails is writing the uh, city emergency operations plan and any subsequent annex that has to do with any specific hazards like wildfires or earthquakes or what have you. Um, And then uh, stand up an emergency operations center. And the way that I like to explain that to people is, you know, when you watch your movies and you see that, that room, you know, with all the TVs and all the computers, well, I'm in charge of that room. So I'm the coordinator for that room. And I help to train and to teach city staff how to operate in that room. And so since um, we have never, during the, the 11 years that I've been an emergency coordinator, we have not had to activate our emergency operations center for any emergency until, you know, March 14th when we had to activate it for COVID-19. And the other part of it is, you know, we we activated it for the first time and we had to activate it virtually. So thankfully we have the mechanisms in place to be able to work virtually. And I think at the highest point, there was 60 of us all together working in our emergency operations center. And then in the midst of it, you know, we're working 12 hour shifts, seven days a week. We, there was the George Floyd civil unrest. So we had to, um, activate for that as well and declare an emergency for that as well. And so actively work that for my city. And then, you know, now as uh, we're in tactical alert for the Brianna Taylor uh, potential for civil unrest. So it's it's been a very challenging year, obviously, for everybody. Um, but, you know, we're we're plugging through. Gotcha. And I think I think that experience will come back and be um, uh Relevant in some of these other points we're going to get to here. Um, in, in your introduction, I heard you mention three kind of priorities, and I don't know if they're your top three, but they're the ones the ones I specifically heard you mention in the introduction. Um, I heard development, crime, and the budget. Um, do you want to go into some more specifics on all three of those, or is there is there another subject you'd like to start with in terms of your priorities? No, those are those are good. I mean, you know, there's the way that I see. I mean, Santa Monica you know, is in crisis. Our beautiful city is in crisis. And so there's so many different things that we need to work on. You know, we do need to work on our crime. We do need to work on, you know, on the, our unhoused. We do need to work on, you know, the budget. Um, so we can start with it. <laughs> uh, let's, let's start with crime just as, as a subject, right? Sure. Um, so define for me that your definition of sort of your your define for me your definition of the crisis as you see it as it relates to crime well i think that you know there's a disconnect and and i'll explain i'll elaborate a little bit further on that but there's a disconnect between you know what our law enforcement is able to do and to be effective and what the residents in the community believe that they should be doing and so um I had I had an opportunity to speak to some of our police officers and, you know, they're just as frustrated as we are in terms of, you know, trying to prosecute and cite those that are, you know, are committing you know, the, the petty crimes right in the city. So we all know in our city what corners, you know, there are drug deals going on or we know, you know, when you pass that encampment, all those bikes, we know that doesn't belong to them. So there's a lot of things going on throughout the city. 
um, that, you know, as a, as a resident, we're asking ourselves, well, why are those people there? Why are they allowed to be there? Why aren't they doing that? And the reality is, is that, you know, with a lot of the, the laws that have come down from the state level, um, a lot of those, those smaller petty crimes, you know, you can cite them, but you know, at the end of the day, is it, is it going to go to the city attorney's office? Are they going to be prosecuted? Are they going to be jailed? And the reality is, no, they're not. They're not going to be. And so, you know, this is, there's a lot that needs to do, be done, not only in the city of Santa Monica, but, you know, regionally in order to tighten up the laws that will give our law enforcement the ability to really come after the people that are committing crimes in our city. And, and so I think this, you've uh, sort of alluded to a big, big topic here, right? <laughs> there's a lot here. So, so when we talk about the city attorney, because like, the district attorney is often the one, if not always the one, who makes determinations about some about crimes and prosecution. But at the same time, you've got state laws, like you've got Props 57 and 47, which have basically limited the ability to put people in jail. There's certain crimes where you simply can't jail people, and there's other policies in place where even if someone could receive jail time, uh, the judge could issue, they might serve 10% of a 30-day sentence, which might be three days, which might be the time they've already spent in custody, and then they're just back on the street, right? Like, there's this, there's so much on this subject that I think, I think you're right. I think residents don't fully grasp what police officers are actually able to do. That's right. And, and so, then you throw COVID into it, and it's another, you know, another... Right, because now you've got zero bail, right? So even if you could take someone to jail, they just pop, you know, it's even worse. Right. And so, so... From the city council seat, though, from the city council, you can't you can't undo forty seven and fifty seven, right? Like, right. but what what do you think you can do from the city council dais that's going to make an impact on those quality of life crimes? You know, and, and that and so that's another question that I had um, that I talked to with our law enforcement and to, to give you know some of my ideas, um, and so I really think that we need to retool the way that we are policing in Santa Monica, you know, and my understanding is, you know, we have X amount of detectives. I think that we really need to have more of a police presence throughout the entire city. And we need to build this, you know, identity of a city that um, will not put up with crime, will not allow it in our city and really, you know, follow through with it. Even if it means giving that same person 30 citations, we're going to give that person 30 citations. Um, and, and, and but we need to, to be strategic about how we're going to enforce and how we're going to move forward. And if that means, you know, pulling detectives, you know, and having them do like half shifts of half shifts of, you know, working in the office, investigating cases versus pulling them out in the streets and setting them up strategically throughout the city, then that's what we need to do. But if it means, you know, more substations, if it means police rangers, if it means decoy police cars in known problem areas, um, I think that's what we need to do. But I think that for many reasons, I mean, one, it's going to show our, our residents and our community that, you know, our police are out there, that they're paying attention and that they're being responsive. And then, two, it's going to hopefully deter criminals from committing crimes. Um, I know it seems very, you know, elementary, but I think that, you know, it's a starting point And I really think that it's an opportunity to work collaboratively to to get out there because, that, you know, I, I don't know that our police department or law enforcement really knows how we all feel. I'm sure that, you know, they've heard some of the complaints from some of the residents, but I, 
this is a consensus across the entire city. There is not a single person that I have talked to during this campaign that hasn't the first thing they the first two things they've said to me is crime and homeless. Do you think we need more police officers? You know, it depends. It, it, it really depends. I, I, you know, for me, I really, because I have a good understanding of, you know, what it is to be a first responder, both police and fire, I work hand in hand with them every day. As a matter of fact, right now in my emergency operations center, my boss is our chief of our, our police department. And so I have a really good understanding of, of what that looks like and, and what they're they're being faced with. So I really do feel like we need to take a good look and sit down and, and look at the department as a whole and see how we can be creative to pull those people out because we need a lot more presence throughout the entire city. I mean, if you think about it, and these are some, some of the statistics that people are not truly aware of. You know, we all know that 90,000 people work, you know, in the city of Santa Monica, but I don't think people, I'm, I'm sorry, that live in the city of Santa Monica, but I don't think people really understand that on, you know, any given day, there could be between 250 and 450,000 people here. And when you have, what, 100 officers on duty at any one time, if you do the math, I, I, it's, it, it's very difficult for, you know, a department of that size to be everywhere, you know, if if there are big events happening. And so um, I think it has to be a combination of community policing, but then also being very strategic with the resources that we have. And so the the things you've described so far, whether it's redeploying existing resources or, or creative solution making, none of that sounds particularly complicated. It sounds like it sounds like if it's a matter of redeploying officers and it's a matter of getting more boots on the streets, like what? Why don't you think that has been done already? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. You know, there's a lot that I don't know what has and has not. You know, like I said in my opening um, statement, you know, this wasn't my path, but it, it's chosen me and I'm here and I'm ready to stand for my residents and for my community. And so, um, you know, I don't know why it hasn't been done already, but I think that it's an opportunity. There's a lot of opportunities here to to move forward, you know, with a fresh perspective, you know, fresh opportunities um, to make some some changes. I don't think, you know, I think the old ways are not working. Uh, uh- Gotcha. And so when we get into a similar topic here, like you say, crime and homelessness, right? I, I, absolutely. Homelessness is front of mind for folks. And so on a similar – but and we have a sort of a similar situation, right, with homelessness where you've got certain – you can't police your way out of homelessness because you've got the same situations and problems. You've got civil rights concerns. There's complicated issues around what you can and can't do. But at there's clearly a homeless crisis here. So from your perspective, if you're sitting on the dais, what changes, what policies, what would you, would you make to impact the homelessness crisis that we're currently experiencing? And that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. You know, just like you said, there isn't a one size fits all, you know, to to really, you know, impact the our homeless crisis because our homeless, there's varying, you know, degrees of need. There's a recently unhoused, you know, because of the COVID situation. There are the addicted. There are our veterans that may be suffering from PTSD. And then those that are suffering from, you know, mental health issues and concerns. And so clearly, you know, one of the first things I would do is reinstate, you know, our our homeless liaison um, employee, because we really need to have one key person that's kind of at the helm of the ship, if you will, because it's a very complicated um, situation. But 
And just to, just to clarify for people what you mean there, sure. uh, we used to have a, a city employee who was the, whether you call them the liaison or what they were in charge of homelessness efforts in the, in the city. It was uh, Alyssa Ordunia was her name. Correct. And we lost her. She was one of the people that was let go when there was a wave of mass firings in the city due to uh, COVID-related budget crunch. And so I just want to clarify for people, that's what you're referring there. We, right, we used to have a position. We lost it. You think that position should be reinstated to provide clarity and oversight to homelessness efforts. For sure. I mean, with, gotcha. without a doubt, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, I'm sitting here talking about crime and, you know, it's like, it's like running a, a police department without a chief. How do you do that? How do you, how are you effective if you don't have, you know, a subject matter expert at the helm working collaboratively, you know, with our first responders who are touching our unhoused every single day and don't have all the resources they need in order to connect that person in need with the right help, right? And so it's it's putting together a framework and a plan that works. It's connecting our you know existing social services, but you know with with that person, so that liaison, and then bringing our police and fire to the table and working you know working together to create a plan that's not only available internally but also externally. You know us. As, our, as a community, we need to know what that plan looks like. There needs to be a toolkit, not only for city staff on how to combat, how to assist, you know, um, how to provide resources for, but also a toolkit for those that live and work here in Santa Monica on how they can help, how they can police, how they can, you know, offer compassionate accountability. And so, um, and there, and Santa Monica has tried, you know, I know that they, they, work with a lot, quite a few not-for-profits and give money, but I think there needs to be oversight. There needs to be more metrics. There needs to be just a well-rounded plan so that we are all, are all on the same page and, if that, and, and, and move forward with that. And if it doesn't work, then we have the ability and the team in place to be able to redirect um, and change and, you know, and shift as needed. And so I, I've heard people talk about plans for for a long time, right? And specifically, I can distinctly remember at our, I believe it was our last Squirm Night, where we actually had an in-person event, right? Instead of these virtual ones, we brought up homelessness and city council, and and there was literally city council incumbents were like, here's the toolkit brochure that we produced so residents know who to call and what to do. And like, you know, and at the time, the people in the audience didn't actively boo, but they were like, they weren't interested in that. And so- I totally get where you're coming from. I absolutely agree. We, there needs to be a plan. But can, can you give me and listeners like some sort of specific item or specific action or idea that you would want to see in that plan, right? So sure. we develop a plan. We tell people what it is. Like, you know, even just one bullet point. Give me one bullet point out of the plan that would make a difference to people on the streets. Sure. Well, you know, but I, I would like to comment really quickly on what you just said about that, that, you know, that brochure. It's more than just a brochure. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? With any plan, you have to practice and you have to exercise that plan. And I think that that's the problem. There isn't follow through. It's very easy to pacify, you know, your audience like, oh, here you go. Look, 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 we're doing this. But but to not physically go out and do what you're saying you're doing on this plan in a visible, more meaningful way. So one perfect example is, 
you know, for example, I know our fire, you know, fire department. So first, first and foremost, I'm endorsed, proudly endorsed by our Santa Monica fire department. And so I know that our fire department has reached out, you know, in the past to our city manager asking for a homeless liaison or mental health person to be connected to them 24 seven as a resource. And like, like a specific, impl- um, like, when you say like a resource, like someone to go out on calls or someone Correct. who's on the – okay, so like on, a, a responder. On call, uh, someone's on call or a responder that can – you know, if this call comes through and it's – it's and that's a whole other conversation, you know, that we could talk about is having a script in place um, for our dispatchers that will that'll be able to assist our first responders in identifying whether like a mental health unit or a social services unit needs to dispatch with our police and fire. But um, – yeah, it's having that resource 24-7 to be able to go out with them. Because, you know, if I mean, at the end of the day, if it's again, it's very elementary to me. But, you know, what does what what does the fire department do? They're firefighters. They put out fires and they give medical assistance. What does a police department do? Well, they police and they stop crime. But and some of them have had, you know, step further and have had to have, you know, additional trainings and mental health. But they're not experts in mental health you know they're not experts in social services and so they're handicapped you know they're handicapped and they can't give the person that they're touching the right resources if they don't have the resources if they don't have that i know that right now i believe they have a mental health uh professional on call that they have maybe like three hours a day and it's only monday through friday i mean that's unacceptable in a city you know in a city that's in crisis you know, because of their homeless population or they're unhoused, it's it's shameful that we don't have a more robust, all-encompassing, all-inclusive program in our city. Gotcha. And, and you know, to, to reiterate what you said there, like when, when you talk about the police department, and we've talked about this in the paper a bunch, right? There's, you know, the same person who's responsible for talking someone off the bridge when they're going to jump is the same person who may be responsible for issuing a speeding ticket, who's the same person that may be responsible for, you know, checking bags at the pier to make sure there's not a device in them, right? Like, these are all very different skill sets. That's right. right? These these are different things. Well, it's just right? like going to a doctor's office and having the receptionist, you know, take your vitals and, you know... <laughs> and, you know, go over your medical history. No, they're the receptionists. They're there to answer calls and to make appointments. And so, and it's, it's, I know it sounds simple and I've said this lots of times, but it is simple. It's, it's a very simple situation to do and to work with the, a lot of it we can do with existing city resources and existing staff. Um, maybe not right. m- the mental health professionals, but there's a lot that we can do, but we just, it needs to be more comprehensive. But the city does have some mental health professionals available, right? Because we have those, the, the homeless multidisciplinary street teams, and there's the C3 teams, which are y- units, for lack of a better term, that are comprised of doctors, mental health professionals, public safety employees. Um, and those teams go out and do some of this research. They but do. They there's do. not a lot of them. Right. Right. There's- right. So, and it sounds like you're a fan of, was it safe to say you're a fan of that program, that you think that's that's sort of the model that you're looking at? For sure. For sure. Gotcha. Um, and so, like I said, there's lots of stuff on, on crime and homelessness, and you can spend, like, hours just talking about this topic. But there were there are other things that you wanted to talk about, so I want to make sure that we get, get to all of them. But before we move away from these subjects, um, I did want to ask you and give you a chance to talk about the, the May 31st incident, because I think there's 
like there are differences like day-to-day street quality of life crime and policing is different from a giant large-scale emergency right and like the responses and how you handle things maybe like you know day-to-day policing we're not no one's talking about tear gas and armored vehicles right but like on may 31st that became a huge topic of discussion in our community right and so you know, you have a unique background here. What do you think the city did right and wrong that day? And how do you think the city should change and adapt following that incident? Well, uh, there's so many different, there's so many things I can say about this. Um, Let me begin by saying that until that after action report comes out, um, it's very difficult for us to point a finger, you know, at the end of the day, everybody is has been pointing to the chief, but you know, it could have been the city manager that said no. It could have been city council that said no to extra resources. You know, we don't know. We don't know. Um, so for me personally, I'm not going to point fingers until I see that report, but I can tell you, you know, right off the bat, you know, have there been pre-planning in place, um, you know, because we, we had a few days notice that the protests were happening in other places. And so, you know, I, I don't know whether plans were already in place or not, but some of the planning could have started to happen, you know, that, that, that Friday, you know, with, with putting the plans together that said, if, you know, if protests are coming here, you know, we're closing up the freeways, we are, we are, um, Posting, you know, we're recalling every single city staff, you know, police officer and civilian. And we're, we're, you know, we could strategize, you know, but at the end of the day, that didn't happen and it should have happened. And I don't know if if it's because of the police chief, the city manager or the city council. Um, But I will tell you that in speaking to police officers, um, they are completely brokenhearted. They're brokenhearted, believe it or not. I know it's very easy. Everybody's angry at them, but you know, the direction had to come from the top on how they conduct themselves, right? And so um, they didn't want to see their beloved city that they have, you know, have dedicated their lives to to uphold um, and to serve, you know, decimated the way that they did. You know, numerous of them told me that the very next day, their families were here, their kids and their spouses were here in Santa Monica, helping businesses clean up. Now, I didn't see city council members, not to say they weren't out there. I didn't see city council members out there. I didn't see the city manager out there. And from the few businesses that were affected that I spoke to, they said that the city council members or city manager, they were never notified by them. You know, I I reached out to a few of them. I donated to them. I helped a few of them. I cried with a few of them. So you know, wrong all the way across the board. We are a community one and all. If our community is hurting, you better believe that I'm going to be out there with them. You know, and I think that um, it was a total failure on the city's part for not being there for our community that day. And one of the things that's that's been very specific and a specific criticism. So first off, we should say I don't think people blame the rank and file officers. Like, right? I, I I genuinely don't think the anger is directed at the individual officers because they were do, going where they were told to go. And I think I think genuinely people think they were doing the best job they can. Um, I will say that I, I have heard a lot of critiques about the officers who were stationed on the promenade within visual distance of the actual looting, and people were concerned 
or angry that those officers didn't sort of break their position and move to somewhere else. But, you know, officers follow orders. It's what they're trained to do. Being on the promenade may have prevented people from moving from 4th Street to 3rd Street, right? There's lots of specifics around that. Right. But one of the, the things that has really stuck with people has been the deployment of resources to confront protesters by the pier, and in specific, the use of tear gas and rubber bullets in that situation. You know, how do you feel about that? And again, we're not pointing fingers. I'm not asking you to to say someone was right or wrong, but like, how how do you feel about the way that that played out? Well, so because I am a first responder, so let me tell you what it looks like on the other end of it, and then we can talk about it. You know, when when there's a crisis, when there's a situation, you know, you obtain situational awareness. So you're the incident commander is probably not in direct, you know, was not there, like right in the middle of it. Right. He's just getting fed information about like these people are, you know, are coming over here. These people are going over there. You know, we're getting surrounded. There's more of them than us. And so based upon the information that's directly in front of him, he has to make he or she has to make a split-minute decision on what tactics and what resources to deploy. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know. Um, so with that being said, um, no, I don't, think, I don't think it was appropriate, you know. I don't think it was appropriate, but at the same time, I don't know what information, what situational awareness that incident commander had that made him make that decision. And I think that that important information is going to come out in the after action report and will shed light on a lot of good and bad, you know, things that, that happened that day. Gotcha. Um, so we talked to, again, we can go, we can talk oh, about crime can, and homelessness sure. all day long, right? For sure. But I, I want to make sure we get to some of the other topics that you, that you, you mentioned and would like to talk about. Um, did you want to talk about development? I, I, I heard you mention that in, in one of your early comments. Um, or is there another subject that you would like to address? No, we, I'd love to talk about development. Gotcha. Most people do. <laughs> so you're, you're a resident of the Pico neighborhood, is that correct? Correct. And specifically in the Gandara Park area, which in between gotcha. Ishihara Park and Gandara Park. Gotcha. So uh, just real quick, you know, do you use Ishihara Park? Do you like it? I love Ishihara Park. I love it. I used to all, I have, so let's preface this by saying I have three boys, uh, 9, 12, and 16. So we actively use, you know, a lot of parks in Santa Monica and have for many, many years. Gotcha. I- Ishihara, I, I, I asked because that's my, uh, well, pre-COVID, that was the go-to park to be able to have a grill and like we would, you know, we would grill there, my girlfriend and I, and that that, that was the go-to, yes. uh, you know, again, pre-COVID, right? Because. Yes. Now all amenities are closed and we can't do that and it's sad. But um, yeah, we do like that park. And so I guess in development, again, this is another big topic, right? You've got small scale developments where you've got individual houses or sometimes apartment buildings being rebuilt, densified, increased. And you've got large scale development like uh, Lincoln and Olympic or like – Broadway and Fifth downtown, where our office is, where you've got these huge structures going up. You know, what I, I, I'm going to safely say that I think you are probably opposed to a lot of the development. I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that, but why, why don't you describe to me what you think the state of development in the city is and what you think it should be? 
So that's a wow, <laughs> that's a loaded question. But um, well, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to give you a chance to set the stage for, for how sure, you think it. For sure. So. Well, you know, and so so I am for a livable city. Yeah, and and that also brings me to I'm proudly endorsed by a Santa Monica Coalition of Livable Cities as well. I am slow growth. I am completely against any type of commercialism into residential um, neighborhoods in any way. No encroachment. Um, I can begin by being, and I can give you some stories about personally being affected. And this is how I had to become an advocate for my community. Yeah, why don't we start there? Because that that um, I think that's specific to this topic, and it discusses your sort of origin story into politics. Sure, yeah, and it'll frame everything as to why I feel the way that I feel. And so um, I was a renter originally here in Santa Monica over 20 years ago. Uh, I used to live over on 18th and Idaho in my little rent control with my then-fiancé, and I loved you know, the walkability and, you know, being able to, to walk around the neighborhood safely and, and, and get, get to a coffee shop, if you will. And then we had an opportunity to buy a house here in Santa Monica. And it was something that we never thought in a million years we would ever, ever be able to afford. But we found this broken down, (laughs) broken down house with 23 broken windows and shag carpet. And we, you know, depleted our, our 401ks so that we can, you know, have a, a down payment to buy this broken down house, but it had good bones. So we depleted it. There was 50 people that put in bids on our house. And because it was a probate sale and what I didn't know, my broker put in a lovely love letter. Um, the love letter is what got us this house because the children wanted an, a, a young family to build their life and their family in this house. And so that's how I got to own a house in um, the city of Santa Monica. And so that was back in 2001. And literally, I would say very early on, I started to hear, and I actually think I had to sign some paperwork that said, there's a potential that down the line, there may be an expo line in and around your neighborhood. Um, And I think that was part of my paperwork. But shortly thereafter, I started to get the announcements that the expo line and city were considering putting the 24-hour maintenance yard behind my home on exposition. And further research showed that the original location was the Bergamot Station. And so I'm like, Bergamot Station made a lot of sense because that's in a commercial area. And so the the residents wouldn't be affected by a 24-7 yard. So we united with the neighbors and we fought and we fought and we, we wrote letters and we met with attorneys. And, you know, and I remember, you know, as someone that's a public servant, you know, that works for a municipality, if I want to attend a meeting, a, a city council meeting, I have to rush home. <laughs> I have to make dinner. I have to get a babysitter for my three kids. I have to rush to the city of Santa Monica. I have to pay for parking. I have to pull, you know, a speaker card. I have, especially for a big topic like this, I have to wait two to three hours um, to speak for two minutes. And by the time I get up on the dais, I was prepared to, you know, to plea my case and to say, you know, what it took me to get here to be able to to raise a family and to be here. And the person right before me, uh, you know, was talking about, uh, you know, why aren't you using Bergamot? And I don't remember who it was on the dais, but they said, well, you know, we really don't want to affect the the vibrancy and the, the vibrancy and the, the art and culture that Bergamot brings to Santa Monica. And I was floored 
I was floored because I, I just everything that I had rehearsed went out the window because I'm next up. And I and I I literally had to say to them, how dare you? Like, how dare you put the needs and wants or or put commercial, the vibrancy of the community over the health and safety of families and people like shame on you. You know, you have a perfectly acceptable location and yet you don't want to ruin the art and culture. But yet you're going to put our lives and our livelihood in jeopardy because you don't want to disrupt that. And I just lost it. And sure enough, they didn't like what I had to say. And they were rude to me. They were condescending to me. And they essentially just told me to shut up and sit down. I remember leaving there and getting to my car and just crying, crying, because I felt like, how could they not listen to the 200 and some odd people that were there that are telling you and you have another viable option? And so that was my first foray into it. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, we had to fight for a buffer park, a park, something, you know, some type of concessions that we have to live with this 24-7 yard, uh, maintenance yard, which, by the way, I've got voice recording after voice recording of the, the horns and the screeching brakes at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. We get to hear that every single day. Um, so that was that first part of it. Then we fought for this, this beautiful park, which now there I saw a posted notice behind the learning garden, one little piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, on a pole that indicated that stand by because part of the park, both east and west, is going to be dug up for water treatment um, facility that's going to be put in there um, that's going to connect to water in L.A. So clearly, you know, to connect to water in L.A., you know, and you have to go through eminent domain and what have you, that's years and years in the making for sure, without a doubt. So in my head and in the heads of everybody that lives over here is, they gave us the park as a concession, knowing that down the line and eventually they're going to have to dig parts of it back up and, you know, make that park even smaller. So these are the types of tactics that we have been dealing with, you know, throughout the city. And and, and then the second part of, of another situation that I've had to go up is, you know, um, recently the city passed, you know, through ordinance is to allow or, you know, through a conditional use permit permit um, the ability for someone to turn a single family house into a school, not a home daycare, but into a school, a place where you can open the door, you know, allow, you know, 20 families to come in uh, throughout the day and then, you know, leave it. And then at the end of the day, you can lock up and you can go home. Well, here where I live, you know, this is the one of the most affordable single family neighborhoods in all of Santa Monica. We're an R1 neighborhood. And so this woman came in and applied for a conditional use permit to, to and bought a house here to do that, to turn it into a school, taking away the ability, you know, for some a family to come in and buy an affordable house in our neighborhood so that she could have her pet project business in the middle of my street. And we fought her, we fought the planning commission, we fought city council, and we lost. We lost. And it was, again, it was 
felt dejected. We felt there's so many things that we felt at the end of that. Um, and the woman was not a nice woman. We had lots of conversations with her about why can't you go somewhere else? You know, there's a lot of open, you know, commercial property that would work just as well. And she's like, nope, I want a house. I want to be able to use your learning garden over here. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. And when we explained to her, and I'll tell and this is in front of other people, and I explained to her, I said, you know, there are 43 preschools in our zip code over here at 90404. But yet over where you live, which was you know, north of Montana, there's only, I think, one or two preschools. And when I asked her about that, I, why don't you put one over there? And she, and she laughed at me. And she said, you know, come on, honey. You know, we don't need preschools over here. So, you know, this is the woman that, you know, that is here now. And the day after we lost, she came to each one of our houses, those of us that were most active. And she, wearing all white at 830 in the morning and left dead flowers on our front porches. And in my country, because, you know, I'm Latin, that's considered a threat. And I had a video of it from my camera because, again, because of crime, we've got cameras everywhere. And I sent that video footage to all the city council members. And Ted Winters, the only one that responded, and he said, well, you know, I'm sure it was well-intentioned. Um, you know, the flowers probably, you know, were wilted. And then I sent him back a little notice saying that it was 68 degrees. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's, it's not okay. And we're not being protected. And we're not, you know, we want what everybody wants. It's just to have a nice, livable community where we can live and be free of, you know, commercialism and just try to raise our families as peacefully as we possibly can. Gotcha. So a couple things. Um, it's interesting, and your your take on development is actually very different from some of the other folks in in the the race, both challengers and incumbents. You know, I think, and it's not good or bad, just different, right? Like because of where you live and your experience. And so, there's two things. Um, I want to make sure that if you give you a chance, if you want to to address some of as you brought development up as a subject, some of the big development projects downtown. If if you want to talk about those, sure. Um, but but I also would like to talk to you and and. Get, get your thoughts on how the city of Santa Monica has responded to the COVID crisis because you have expert level knowledge of that. And so I just think I'd like to get your thoughts on how the city's responded to that. Um, and, and, you know, also, you know, we're at 45 minutes and, you know, I want to make sure we, we have enough time to get, make sure that you feel you've addressed all the topics you want to cover as well. So, sure. um, you know, wh where would you like to start in those sort of three things? Well, let's let's finish off with development, gotcha. and then we can move on. So, how do I feel about it? Well, I'll tell you, fourth in Arizona, I'm completely opposed to um, what the are proposing. You know, right now with the hotel and what have you, that's public land. It should be for public use. It should be for the residents in the community. You know, I'm completely open to open housing and affordable housing. I mean, open open space and affordable housing, without a doubt. I think putting another hotel there is absolutely silly um, for many different reasons. Um, you know, rather than building more hotels, we should be supporting the existing hotels that are here in Santa Monica. Um, and so I'm 100% opposed to that project. In terms of the Miramar project, as it stands, no, I'm not for it at all. You know, the circulation is terrible. Yeah, um, 
the condos, you know, what, what, what community benefit are those condos really? At the end of the day, there's no community. That's a developer benefit. That's not a community development develop uh, benefit, I should say. And then, you know, that, that you know, the surrounding area, you know, the second street in California behind, you know, I know there's mixed uh, office buildings and housing on second street, but on California, it's all housing. Um, so to, to, have you know traffic go in and through those one-way streets i know how the train has affected us over here <laughs> because of the at grade arm you know there's no way that that's that this that's not okay that's not okay all the circulation should be you know stay on wilshire boulevard and so i'm not happy with it as is at all gotcha um you want to talk about covid for a little bit sure so with COVID, um, I will tell you that the city of Santa Monica, their disaster resilience or their uh, um, director, if you will, she is fantastic. She actually has a background in infectious diseases. And so she has been, as, as an area, and I'll give you a little background on that, but she has been a huge resource to the surrounding cities in terms of um, you know, personal protective equipment, um, planning, um, her understanding of, you know, the medical field and and emergency management has been very key. And so a lot of what she has done for city of Santa Monica, I have emulated over in the city of Culver City. And so she's a fantastic resource for the city and has done her and her and the, her emergency coordinator, which is Stephen, um, have done a bang up job. So I'm really happy with what they've done. And with all the communication strategies that they've had in place to get the information out um, to the community. Uh, How do you feel about the uh, continued closure of the peer entrance? Um, I, I kind of feel I feel good about that. I, I you know, the, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to limit, you know, public gatherings as much as we possibly can in order to protect the health and safety of our community. And, you know, the the closure of the pier, you know, allows us to limit as much as possible possible the amount of people that are are are, are visiting and going down there. And so, it's you know, it's not because we want to, but it's one of those things where we have to try to limit exposure in any way possible. Gotcha. And the reason I ask you these questions is, you know, you have your expertise in this is interesting. And, you know, it's interesting to hear someone who's knowledgeable about the subject weigh in on some of these things. And so uh, when this when COVID first hit, you know, there was a lot of discussion and some controversy around the initial fencing off of Palisades Park. And there's continued community discussion around the closure of amenities and what isn't isn't open in the public spaces. Um do you think the city has made the right decisions so far when it comes to limiting access and limit to, to the to amenities and parks in absolutely, the city? Absolutely. I mean, you have to understand that a lot of this direction, it's not because, you know, our cities arbitrarily want to do this. It's all being directed by a health order and the health order, you know, is, is enforceable and, you know, we have to adhere to the health order. The only ability that we have is to be more stringent than a health order. We can't be less stringent. And so, um, we've been going by the letter of the law, and so to in order to avoid any type of community transmission. And early on, you know, when we didn't know as much as we know now, we still don't know a whole lot. But you know, early on, we had to 
we had to basically shut everything down because we didn't know if, you know, the droplets or if you touched, you know, an inanimate object, whether you were going to be able to spread or contaminate yourself. And so closing down any of this, this, the structures, you know, like in, in playgrounds and parks was crucial and critical because, you know, it could for the community transmission. And so I support 100 percent those closures without a doubt. I, we had to do the same in, in my city. Gotcha. Um, so two things. Uh, I want us to try and wrap up a little bit only because I know from our data that people don't listen to things that are more than an hour long. <laughs> Their eyes, they just don't listen very long. So, um, but before we do, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there is there a topic or a subject that you wanted to address that you haven't been able to yet? And before you get to that, I want to let you know, you're also going to have an opportunity to sort of make a closing statement. So sometimes people have gotten those two things confused and just done one. But if there's a topic you want to address, great, let's talk about it now. And then once we wrap that up, you'll have an opportunity to sort of make a closing statement if you want to. Um, Thank you for that opportunity. I think at the end of the day, what I want people to know and to understand about me is that I am your neighbor and I am someone that, like you, has has felt, you know, uh, I know I've said this a few times, but just dejected and disappointed um, with with the way that government has been working. And, you know, there isn't a lot of transparency from here. You know, there's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of, you know, just, you know, recently this last week, all these reports have been coming up about, you know, Council Member Davis and, and her connection to the Miramar, you know, and so... She's asking to recuse herself, you know, from making any type of vote. But if we really think about this, she's had eight years to talk about, um, you know, this agreement and to negotiate. And so, you know, whatever damage that she could have done, it's already been done. And so how do you fix something like that? Um, And then, you, you know, you hear about all these political action committees that are supporting all the candidates, you know, the incumbents and, and what have you. And, you know. And then you connect the lines between some of the developments and things that have happened in the city. And, you know, there is no transparency there. And that's not okay for me. That's, that's not, you know, what, what benefit, what community benefit is there for, for some of the decisions that have been made in terms of, so let's talk about the housing on Lincoln Boulevard, right? So a lot of us have been calling it the Canyon. Lincoln Boulevard has already been such a, an impacted thoroughfare through our city, you know, for years and years and years. And I understand, you know, you want to put transit oriented housing so that you encourage people to use transit. Um, And I understand that, but Lincoln Boulevard, in my opinion, was not the place for it. Um, I know that we, you know, in terms of, you know, being, being green, and, you know, encouraging as much public transportation as possible is key. Um, and I'm completely in all for it. But, you know, in a city like Santa Monica, you know, you can't convince everybody to to go on public transportation. And the few times that I've attempted it, you know, as a mom with three kids, my kids will not get on the metro. I tried it two to three times each time there was either a fight on the metro on the line or there was someone that had just finished smoking pot and it smelled like it and my kids were gagging, um, you know, to, you know, people that were mentally unstable on the the train. So they are terrified of going on the train. So that doesn't work for us. Um, In terms of biking, you know, we 
tried to use our bike lanes and we tried to use that. But at the end of the day, it's a terrifying hair. It's a terrifying experience because, you know, you're fighting the train and you're fighting cars and you're fighting. And so it's like, it's terrifying. So the only times that I allow my children to, to bike on this, you know, to bike period is when we're, you know, on the bike path, you know, not along, you know, our neighborhood streets, unfortunately. And it's, it's very scary as a parent. So that doesn't work. So I am one of those parents, unfortunately, that has to use a car. And it takes me, you know, my kids go to St. Monica's and it takes me 20, 25 minutes sometimes to go pick up my kids from school. And then I have to get them to, you know, a practice or a music class or, you know, I've got three kids and it's just me. So cause my husband works crazy hours. So at the end of the day, you know, how that we need to really, I know they've been working, the city has been trying to work on some traffic planning and mitigating and, um, but we need to do better. There's, there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done. And by building up these huge developments, hoping to force people to public transportation, you know, while it may work, maybe 10, 20%, but at the end of the day, it's just, I think it's compounding the existing problems that we already have throughout the city. And so, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so I'm hopeful, you know, I, I, I don't know if the community knows, but I am running on a slate with three other amazing people, Oscar De La Torre, Phil Brock, and Mar- Mario Fonda Bernardi. And we are all very like-minded on, on what we feel we, you know, that the city needs. And, but we're also open and collaborative with our, our residents and our community members. We want to hear from everybody. We want to know how can we, you know, be your voice, voice you know, if elected and how can we, you know, just make the quality of life here in the city of Santa Monica better. And so that's why, you know, I stood up, I stood up with my neighbors and I stood up with, with my running mates to hopefully affect change in the beautiful community that we live in. Gotcha. Uh, do you want, so do you want to make a second closing statement or, or was that kind of the, that, the combination I, I, all I, at once? I think it ended up being kind of a combination of both. I'm just very grateful and I'm humbled by all the support that I've been garnishing throughout the city. It means a lot to me to have people um, entrust me and support me. Um, and I'm just, I'm thankful and I just know that I will always do my best, that I will not accept any developer money ever, and that my intentions are fair, transparent, and good. Thanks for listening to the Santa Monica Politics Podcast, powered by the Santa Monica Daily Press. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the Santa Monica Politics Podcast is provided by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that's been playing on the West Side since 2002. Their regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder, to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. If you want to find out where they're playing next, go to thebrigband.com.